This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive, here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Emily Bernard, author of the essay collection Black is the Body. Bernard was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, earned her B.A. and Ph.D. in American Studies from Yale University, and is an English professor at University of Vermont. Some of her other books include Remember Me to Harlem, The Letters of Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten, and Some of My Best Friends, Writings on Interracial Friendships. She also wrote the introduction to the Penguin classic novel Passing by Nella Larson. Emily Bernard's essays in Black is the Body reflect on her childhood in Tennessee, adopting two daughters from Ethiopia, her marriage to a white Italian-American man, her teaching career at University of Vermont, a nearly all-white university in a nearly all-white state, and a tragic incident where she was stabbed by a mentally ill man in New Haven, Connecticut. We began the interview with Emily Bernard talking about growing up with her father, an immigrant from Trinidad, who was a strong presence in her life, and the idea of reinvention as one of the oldest Black stories there is. Well, my father was a very, he was very charismatic and a very influential figure in my life and in the lives of many people. He was sort of a pillar of the community kind of person. He was a physician. He was an immigrant, as you said, from Trinidad. He was from a generation where your 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 own life's purpose was was about something bigger than yourself. For him, the story of his life involved so many other people. He came to the United States in order to to make good in America, to send money back to family, and he fulfilled all of those obligations and all of those kind of timeless mandates of the immigrant. And it was a real example for me because for him, there was so much joy in the labor and the and that's what he and my parents really celebrated together. They both were incredibly industrious people. I think I learned, I got my work ethic from both of them. But because I was growing up in a home with a powerful and and, uh, 
controlling um, patriarch, I wanted to rebel and admit myself. Uh, of course, this is a you know an ongoing dynamic, I think, and it's in the literature itself. You know what it means to become a writer in some ways is to learn to master the narratives that your parents have set before you. You know, I had to make my own story up in order to to free myself and to become myself. But that whole process of breaking away is itself, you know, kind of an invented thing. You know, it's something that we practice over and over again. And it's something that's necessary to the process of growing up. It's both, I think, natural and also really unnatural in that you find, I think, the places where you make the breaks, you know, and then you tell stories about them, about making those breaks, and they seem natural and retrospective, if you know what I mean. So that I can look back on my life and say, well, this was a moment where I broke away from my father. As I get older, I see, well, that's, it suits my purposes <laughs> to see it in that way. <laughs> you know, I'm always kind of making up the story of my life, even, even as I am living it. So for Black people, you know, telling the stories of our lives is literally always been a way of, of making ourselves human, you know, in the eyes of a, a legal system that didn't, didn't even recognize our humanity. We told stories, you know, we didn't have written records, uh, you know, of our lives. No one cared to create archives um, to, for, for most black people in this country, right? I mean, you know, you've died completely unsung. Uh, so your lives, your life survived in the stories you told and the stories people around you told. And so to me, it's incredibly kind of sacred practice storytelling is a way of, of re, re preserving, and, but also inventing a story. Um, and I'm always aware of it. I'm always sensitive to, to that, to that fact that as I'm telling stories about who I am, I realize I'm creating some arbitrary boundaries, you know, and presenting some, in some ways, artificial answers to questions that can't be answered. The exercise of writing, what is that for you? For Black is the Body, what did it do for you maybe working these things out on the page and what do you hope it does for your reader? At first, you know, sort of felt dogged by certain questions that brought me to the page, sort of working out, you know, various images and ideas, questions I had. It felt like an oddly more intimate space to pursue some of the most precious questions I had about living to present them to the world. Oddly, you know, you had these conversations, um, in person with friends, but writing sometimes feels like praying to me. You know, there's a lot of faith that goes into it that you are investing your deepest self to a stranger, to a, an entity that may or may not be out there, God or a reader. You know, you have no idea if anyone's going to ever pick it up, but there's that, that same faith that makes my palms together in church. The, the same impulse gets me to the keyboard the belief, the deep belief that there has got to be something, somebody out there in this universe that can help me um, understand what it is I'm dealing with and how to proceed. And the process of making myself vulnerable is actually really, it's, it feels like the only authentic way I can be, particularly on, on the page. In order to be the writer I want to be, I have to be the reader. You know, I want to be who is also someone who is vulnerable and willing to take risks. You know, that's the kind of reader that, that I'm looking for. And when I'm reading a book, I want to bring that self to the book. I want to be open to what the writer's trying to tell me and to put aside my own fears and preconceived ideas. And so that's the reader I'm trying also to, to appeal to. And I'm very committed to crafting a, a really good sentence. And that becomes then part of it as well. There's a kind of mysterious thing, the questions that just won't leave you alone. There's a practical aspect, which is 
even more important, how to articulate these questions in a way that can be most effective. How do I use um, a semicolon? And um, there's a there's a uh, a structure, you know, there's a kind of mandate for the writer of the essay, but there's also a wildness at the same time that is at the heart of anything, any good writing, I think. There has to be a wild quality to it, even if that's not visible. One of the things that I got is that that wildness, maybe that need to tell these stories, really came out and from from an incident that happened to you that was in, incredibly unfortunate and painful, which was that you were stabbed in a cafe when you were attending Yale randomly by um, a man who was definitely mentally ill, but that stabbing somehow set you free. Is, is that right? And if so, can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah. And I do, you know, when I wrote those lines, I, you know, I was stabbed in 1994. Um, I've been dealing with this for a long time. It has been the single most significant incident of my adult life. I was a 27-year-old graduate student and a man came to a coffee shop, as you said, who was, you know, he was, he was mentally ill and he stabbed people, kept seven people. I was one of the people. Um, it was a coffee shop in a college town. No one in, in the 90s before this stuff was happening every day. You know, no one was prepared for this. We weren't living with the kind of fear I think a lot of us are living with now. But what I think I learned from that, so the incident, you know, happened and it was, it was pretty earth shattering. It, um, it didn't, uh, no one died, which I always say whenever I tell the story, I think it gives people a lot of relief. And I also know that I'm sure I would be a different person if, if someone had died, you know, it, it, it would have affected me very differently, but I was able to, uh, to survive it and to make use of it. As you said early on, you know, what, what can you make of these things? And that's, I think, what the stabbing, what I, um, when I consider its impact on my life, what use I have made of it, um, it has made me acutely aware of how little control I have over my own life, my own body. In my case, uh, the that terrible night didn't really end with uh, the repair work of surgery. I've had to go back to the hospital four times now since that night to have uh, surgery because I developed adhesions in my bowel. So every, every few years, I, I mean, it's completely spontaneous. I can't predict it or prevent it. Uh, my intestines and scar tissue get tangled up together and I end up on a gurney again. So what I've had to learn to do with this is to learn to work with this wound. You know, I spent a fair amount of time, you know, kind of shaking my fists at the world and, and it's, Definitely, every time I go back to the hospital, it's it's not a um, it's it's demoralizing, it's destabilizing. You know, yet again, here I am. But there's there there's a choice, right, to lie down and die or get up and live. And at some point, I decided that um, you know, I was going to have to work with this wound, that I wasn't going to be able to wish it away. So it definitely opened to me. I think this is you know not uncommon. That there's a real urgency to our plans that night changed my life. And subsequently, you know, I'm aware always that I, I really don't know how much time I have left. I don't have time to, to be afraid of, of writing. You know, I face down worst fears. <laughs> so I would say the overall tone or, or just the overall message or, or themes that I got out of Black is the Body is that 
you know, I learned so much from reading this book. You know, I try to be a conscious, loving white person, but obviously I grew up in a racist, patriarchal society, so I'm going to make mistakes. And one of the things that I I got out of your book was that you were teaching me so much along the way, like things that I didn't even think about, like that the way that you dress for work, like that how much white privilege is embedded in the fact that one of your coworkers might come dressed in jeans and a T-shirt and that you have to dress up or that you think about it if you step in front of a white person in line and, and that that wasn't something that you always could do. But as you're teaching me, I think you also have a lot of empathy for the people who are trying and making mistakes. And I was just wondering about that sensibility. Maybe I'm interpreting that wrong, but I'm wondering if you could talk about sort of the essence of maybe not what you're trying to put into this, because I don't know if writing is that conscious, but what came out of it? I love that observation. I think that's absolutely, absolutely correct. We're all suffering, you know, right now, and or many of us are. You know, in, the, in these years of so much confusion and so much disappointment, you know, where we just can't trust our national leaders to be role models in any way. Well, I'm thinking of one, you know, the question for me, again, it comes up these basic, like, are you going to contribute to joy in the world or pain? There's enough pain, you know, and there are enough, there are enough uh, fingers wagging. And I think I'm just, I'm not that kind of person. I mean, you're, I love what you say. I, I'm, a, I'm an educator. It's really, it's endemic to my, who I am. I think writer, educator, those things are very much tied to who I am in the world and how I operate every day. And, you know, I think compassion first. I think that we put our compassion feet first, our empathy feet first. This is not a book that I wrote to call white people out. I wrote this book for, you know, readers and people who are interested, yes, in these issues, but people also who just love good stories. I wanted to please those readers. So this is not a book that is meant to um, kind of reinforce perceived lines about who whose stories belong to whom. You know, this is not a book that imagines a black audience or a white audience. This book hopes to have friends who are white. <laughs> you know, this book hopes to have a kind of multiracial group of readers and friends. Um, and I, I didn't want to write a book that would be predictable in that way, that would be shaking a finger at a white reader. I, yeah, in some ways, it's not me who I am, number one. I want to be able to let my guard down, and I want to be able to be vulnerable and admit my own mistakes as I'm going through a, a book. I want to be able to identify with people I didn't think I could identify with. That's what writing allows me to do. There is uh, my essay in the book, White Friend. You know, my very good friend, Lori, who told me that I was her only black friend. That moment in the essay, I let that sit there when she said that that little confession she makes. I let it sit. That was a very deliberate choice, you know, just to let that sentence sit there. I wanted it to be recognized on its own. I didn't want to follow it up with some apology for Lori or some explanation about, you know, anything. This is a real experience. She doesn't have any other black friends. This is the reality of our life. You know, we... Um, read statistics all the time about how the, the low numbers of people across racial lines who know each other, much less live near each other. So it's inevitable that, or white people don't have black people in their intimate worlds. I mean, that's just, we know that, that statistically that that's typical. You know, if the reader wants to judge Lori, that's on you. <laughs> I'm not going to do that because she's a human being and these are her circumstances and it's not a comment on her character. So um, I wanted to do something that would be that, that'd be a little more challenging for me and hopefully for, for my reader. 
but it's a definitely a book about black experience written from the perspective of a black woman, you know, who is extremely inspired by and vitalized by her own blackness. But it is not meant to um, be taken as a how-to book. You know, I always tell my students, I'm not an oracle. You know, I'm a human being. And I warn them about, I tell them, don't make deities out of black human beings because we will disappoint you too, you know? Um, so I think that happens a lot with, uh, you know, in our culture. We have, you know, we have white readers um, who want to be, I think, told how to be and want to be told that they are racist. I think as much as much, many people resent it, there are people who actually really court that kind of way of being um, uh, criticized because it feels you know, maybe feels fitting or something. But in some ways I feel it's harder to um, just say I'm human. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about one of the first essays that you actually wrote. It's called Teaching the N-Word. And you're talking about, you know, you, you live in Vermont, which is very white. You teach at the University of Vermont, which is very white. And you're talking a lot about your class and talking about the word and how many white people can't say it and is it okay to say it and there's no resolution that essay was an act of rebellion i was teaching a class african-american autobiography i had 10 students lovely brilliant kids i was very lucky and we came upon the n-word and the question was how to deal with it and i started having conversations with one of my students with whom i am still quite close uh, about the word queer and whether words that are used often to you know, put people down, whether or not they can actually be rehabilitated and used in other ways. Like, do we really believe that? What does it mean? So we were having this really fun conversation about it. And I was having a lot of internal monologue going on and while he was talking to me, because I was in that kind of split screen, else it happens for me. And I guess Du Bois would call it, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois would call it, you know, double consciousness, but, you know, looking at oneself through the eyes of others. And I'm talking to him as his teachers, you know, black woman professor, the only one, you know, that he's had at the University of Vermont. So um, I'm aware of my role here and, and I take it very seriously. But, you know, I'm a person in the world who has feelings about this word that some of them are not like appropriate really for the classroom, I guess. So the essay in some ways about reconciling or not even trying to reconcile, but walking between those two states of being, you know, teacher and human being, and trying to figure out, you know, this word, and I wanted to take it on a walk, literally. And the essay takes takes the reader through a bunch of different scenarios in my own life where the word has played a role in with painful ways, in comical ways, in bizarre ways. And there is no answer. People want answers, right? They want to be told, should I not say the word? Can I say the word? That kind of thing. White people want to be told. And, you know, the short answer is don't say it. It's a word that is steeped in history. It is a word that is an expression of racial hatred. I tell my students, no one was ever lynched without being called that word before, during, and after. Never, no one had ever lynched being called, being called Dr. Jones or Mr. Smith, right? So it it's, goes hand in hand with that kind of violence. It's an expression of it. But in the classroom, of course, it's a different, there are a different set of questions. We're not saying something just for, uh, for the experience of saying it. If the word is in a book, you know, the question I think is a fascinating one. Is it a different experience to utter something out loud as opposed to reading it or writing it? What are the boundaries? What are the effects actually? So we go through all of this in the classroom and I do we talk about it together. You know, I'm 
saying these things to my students, but I, I'll tell them, I listen to the music you listen to. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have the same songs in my mind right now as I'm giving this lecture on the N-word that, you know, and I make little bargains with myself about, and sometimes I just don't want to hear it. I'll turn that, look, I want little John, I don't want little John, you know, <laughs> saying that in my ear today when I'm working out, I'm going to go to Beyonce, you know. And there are also, you know, black artists who use it in a way that's beautiful, you know, and Solange Knowles and her at song, F-U-B-U. That song is a is a, a blues melody. It's all about the that word, and it's it's social commentary. It's really blues at its best, I think, and in terms of its impulse, what she's doing with that word there. And she's it's the refrain in the song, um, and she sings it beautifully. There's it's complex, so there's no simple answer. And that essay is not meant to you know um, do anything other than showcase my own humanity as I'm trying to struggle with it myself. Can you talk about the title? The title of this book, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. Um, the title of Black is the Body is the title of, of an essay um, in the book. And it's the essay that I wrote when I thought to myself, I'm writing a book now. And when I hit those final lines, when I saw the little piece of island, <laughs> okay, that's what it says on that you know little island that says, you know, Black is the Body of this book, you know, or Black is the Body of the Stories I Tell. This, this is real. This is something real I, I want to play with and, and kind of explore in this book, which is the way that, in some ways that I live, you know, I live um, a very, to me, a life that is very black, you know, in the ways that my preoccupations, the rhythm of my sentences, you know, the things I think about, the things I love, the things I'm passionate about, the things I'm angry about. But I also live a life that is not, according to, you know, a lot of uh, gatekeepers, um, you know, I live a life that does not have the markers of a kind of authenticity, I guess, or of blackness or, you know, that has led me to be questioned, you know, over the course of my life. You know, like, are you black enough? Which is a question many black people are asked. It's so common that it's almost a foundational feature of being black is to be questioned about one's blackness. You know, um, I think there are real reasons for that, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't hurt. That essay was about claiming it or staking my claim, I should say, <laughs> um, and saying, you know, this is this is my blackness, and I am black. And in some ways, the book is um, is doing the same thing. It's an announcement. You know, this is a, a book about blackness, but it's also a body of work at the same time. In that way, it's a blackness that's invented and that's kind of massaged and caressed and inherited and passed down um, as a body of stories, as a body of narratives. And the relationship, I think, the question between what is the relationship with my own body and the stories I tell is one that I confront every semester. I mean, teaching African-American literature at a, called the PWIs, you know, a predominantly white institution. You know, I really believe in this tradition of African-American literature, and I am writing within that tradition as my grand hope, you know, to be, to be counted, to, be, to tell stories that are worthy. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I will. I'd be happy to. There's a book, Annie John by Jamaica Kincaid. And this is a book that has taught me so much. First of all, I mean, I learned so much from the way this person puts together sentences. Jamaica Kincaid is a master of the sentence and the rhythm of a passage, you know, of a paragraph. She knows how they work. And I studied this book so much. I'm going to read, the book is loosely about, I think, a kind of contest between mother and daughter. Uh, the girl, Annie John, and her mother. Uh, and her, she's, she's in a contest now. Her mother wants to find out about... Um, if she's playing marbles or not. I'm very proper. And 
has heard rumors that her daughter plays, you know, the common game of marbles. Um, her daughter's very clever and also someone who's very moved by stories. And her mother's just told a story uh, about having walked with a bundle on her head when she was a young girl. And a snake climbed out of the bundle. And Annie adores her mother. And she's heard this story and it has just completely gotten inside of her. She knows her mother wants to know if she's been playing more, if she's been lying to her mother. She knows that her mother has totally sucker punched her with this story. How I would have loved my mother if I had known her then. To have been the same age as someone so beautiful. Someone who even then loved books. Someone who threw stones at monkeys in the forest. What I wouldn't have done for her. Nothing would ever be too much. And so feeling such love and such pity for this girl standing in front of me, I was on the verge of giving to my mother my entire collection of marbles. She wanted them so badly. What could some marbles matter? A snake had sat on her head for miles as she walked home. The words, the marbles are in the corner over there, were on the very tip of my tongue. When I heard my mother, her voice warm and soft and treacherous say to me, well, little miss, where are your marbles? Summoning my own warm, soft, and newly acquired treacherous voice, I said, I don't have any marbles. I have never played marbles, you know. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that? <laughs> I, I love this passage because it was a real surprise. I mean, for pages, we've been watching her mother try to trick her and try to catch her. It is a, it a, it a battle of wills. It's very, it feels very gendered in that way. It's a, it's a very feminine battle, you know, of wits. Um, the mother is, is, is cultivating this brilliant and creative kid, but she's also cultivating her rebellion too. She doesn't realize it, right? She wants this daughter who's going to be orderly and do what she says, but the mother herself was a rebel. And so it's, she's trying to both nurture her, but also put the brakes on her at the same time. And it's this great thing. The mother who understands her daughter intimately tells her a story about her own vulnerability. She does it very explicitly, like a hypnotist, you know, to get her daughter exactly where she wants her. And it's a moment when the daughter breaks free and says, no, you know, I can even withstand this. And it's a moment of the daughter. It's a, it's a turning point for her um, as she starts to break away from her mother. And they both know what's happening. The both of them respect the guises and the masks they've, they've created too too well. Um, so I've loved what a delicate and thoughtful contest it represents. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm going to read a passage from um, that's hard to read from the essay Scar Tissue. Um, and I'll explain why. This is, a, this is a, about um, the essay about uh, stabbing when I was stabbed uh, in 1994. I say earlier um, that the stabbing didn't hurt. Getting stabbed didn't hurt. But now I continue. I did experience terrible pain on the night of August 7. The person responsible for it was a surgeon on call. I lay on a gurney, feeling helpless and afraid. The surgeon walked over and, without saying a word to me or even looking in my direction, plunged his fingers into my gaping wound. I gasped and instinctively grabbed his hand. It was only then that the man looked at me and said icily, don't touch my hand. His eyes were airy and blue and as cold as his voice. I asked questions about what was happening and he refused to respond. 
Only the attending nurses treated me with any kindness or respect. Whenever I tell the story of the night I got stabbed, I always say that the person who did the most injury to me, who left the deepest wounds, was not Daniel Silva, but the surgeon. Tell me more about that. The man who stabbed me, his name is Daniel Silva, which is the name of a popular novelist. <laughs> and every time I'm in an airport, you know, bookstore, there's Daniel Silva. I think I have to learn to live with this. It's not obviously not the same person, but it always strikes me as, as you know, but darkly funny. Um, but right, the man who stabbed me was mentally ill. Um, you know, he didn't know me. He could not be held responsible for his actions. You know, um, he was in a psychotic state when he went bananas um, and stabbed seven people. The surgeon was a professional person, presumably not crazy, um, who treated me as if I was not a human being. And what we also know, you know, among other statistics about race and um, how the effects of living in a black body in this world is that you receive shoddy, shoddier medical care, that you're not taken as seriously, your pain is not seen as meaningful to the people who are supposed to be attending to that pain. You know, there, there, there've been multiple studies on this and they're shocking and they're terrifying. If you know, if you are a black person who spends any amount of time in a hospital like me, I am always, as soon as I get to the hospital, I'll call all my white friends who are doctors and make sure they come so that the other doctors will see I'm, I'm a person. And sadly, that means I'm a person, I'm attached to white people here. They, can't, they care if I live or die. So you can't treat me like I'm a, you know. And in fact, that night after the surgeon, um, after he did that horrible thing, uh, and I knew it was, you know, I could look at it and it made, almost made it worse was looking in the eyes of the nurses and seeing their, their terror. They were afraid of him too. I asked another doctor, told, and the doctor said, you know, well, you know, look, he sees a lot. He wasn't apologizing for the guy. He felt badly for me. But he, what he said was telling and that he said, the surgeon sees a lot of gunshot victims. He sees a lot of stabbing victims. I mean, he all but said he sees a lot of damaged black bodies. <laughs> you know, we're living, living in New Haven, in New Haven, Connecticut, you know, which is a poor black city. And it was, it was all I needed to hear um, to understand that, you know, he saw me as another black victim, um, not a person. Um, and that's, that was pretty terrifying. And it made me feel much worse. Um, and it stayed with me as a deeper wound. Daniel Silva didn't leave. I mean, I definitely, you know, suffer from all the predictable kind of um, PTSD. Whenever I'm in a situation, people start running suddenly. I wrote about this in the essay. I, my, all my flares go up. It, I, I become, my, my heart is just pounding when things kind of go awry suddenly. But uh, Daniel Silva didn't know me, um, whereas the surgeon didn't know me either. But uh, as I said, he was mentally um, competent enough to <laughs> operate on me. But he even worse, he saw me as someone who didn't deserve uh, to be treated kindly. And it was it was a horrible, the way that racism can, you know, we talk about it, it hurts. It can have actual, real bodily effects on you. And in that case, I, I really believe a racist um, lens was what made it easy for him to treat me as if I were nothing. Where do you write? I write in the study in my home. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I love to just get out into nature, which is great because I live in Vermont. So I can just go take a walk uh, somewhere quiet and away from other human beings and just remember that the world is bigger than me and, and what I'm trying to do on the page. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Often my husband is the person who sees it first. He's will give me a straight answer. He's not one for platitudes. <laughs> He'll tell me if it's not working and I'll know 
if it's ready to send out to another layer of uh, on my team. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, rejection is so fundamental, you know, to the writing process. Um, I know Sylvia Plath used to paper her, you know, bedroom the wall with, um, right? There are others who uh, made, you know, made it kept their rejection letters as, as badges of honor. I have mine as well. I try. I just try to to let myself cycle through all the, you know, predictable hurt feelings and indignation. And then after the dust settles after a couple of days, I try to go back and see what I can use from that rejection. Sometimes the rejection is just, you know, will agree to disagree. And sometimes there's something really useful that can help you either in your mission to get published or just in your larger mission as a writer, you see something useful that you can make your work better. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is ineffable which I try to use sparingly because I know I would use it all the time if I weren't self-conscious about it. But I love how it speaks to mystery and how there are mysteries that are difficult to capture in words themselves. And so the word ineffable is an attempt to articulate the things that can't be articulated, which I love. I love the kind of riddle of that. What is the word that you can, what is a word that describes how hard it is to put things into words? That is, that is a word that I love. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Emily Bernard, author of the essay collection, Black is the Body. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.